everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused in security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So before we get started here, a quick bit of housekeeping. This will take about 30 seconds, so if you've heard the last episode wanting to skip it, hit the fast forward button once. As I've been saying lately, I've thought for a while that it would be nice to have a more direct channel to communicate with the folks who listen to OK Talks, especially with increasingly few people wanting to deal with Elon Musk's Twitter. So I've started an email list centered around the podcast. If you want to get a ping when a new episode comes out, shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com and I'll throw you on that email list. I promise not to spam you. Also, as always, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the show, and most importantly, share it around with anybody you think might get something out of it. Thanks to those who already have, and thanks in advance to anybody else who plans to. So every week, thinking about this show, I swear to you, I like cast about for a news story bigger than just how dysfunctional the American Republican Party is right now. I'm like, I can't do another episode about them being crazy. And every week, they seem to come up with a new ways, like yet another act of insanity and, and comical political nihilism that I just can't not talk about it. Last week I, along with, in my defense, basically every other human being on Earth who comments regularly on American politics, talked about the almost inevitable government shutdown that we all expected to begin this past Saturday. I talked about what it would mean, the history of how shutdowns became a thing, and I also talked about why everyone thought it was going to happen, namely that Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, whose political career and uh, <laughs> rather bumpy rise to the speakership I discuss in more detail in episode 32, was basically the hostage of a couple of political terrorists crazier even than the rest of the far right that comprises the House Republican Caucus, a group whose actual demands... <laughs> really weren't very clear except, again, some men just want to watch the world burn. And we all anticipated that McCarthy, whose entire political career has seemed to have been about short-term survival rather than any sort of grand strategy or real political objectives, besides, of course, the lifelong goal of becoming Speaker of the House, that McCarthy would, uh, would capitulate to this small group of arsonists and lead the government into a shutdown because... If he did so, maybe he could thread the needle of letting those chaos agents have some fun and blow off some steam while also demonstrating to them that in a divided government, ultimately the only way forward is to pass a bill to fund the government that is sane enough to pass both the Democratic Senate and be signed by a Democratic president, because you know, that's the reality of divided government that we're in right now. And because, for God's sake, even these lunatics wouldn't be comfortable with us simply ceasing to pay the troops' salaries for an indefinite period of time. Right? Well, we all assumed that. But it would appear that Kevin McCarthy, in a rare moment of lucidity, realized that any group of people willing to rally around the likes of Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who earlier this year barely escaped charges around his... Uh, involvement with an underage girl, that any group of people rallying around him must be so nihilistic that even after a protracted shutdown, they'd never be persuaded to come to the table by the, hey, the troops aren't getting paid logic that I outlined above, meaning that he, Kevin McCarthy, was screwed either way. So in a hitherto unprecedented moment of putting country over self, 
McCarthy brought forward a bill to fund the government, and the House passed it with broad bipartisan support. Although he still apparently couldn't resist throwing a bone to the various traitor Putin enthusiasts in his own caucus, so they stripped out funding for aid to Ukraine. But still, borderline treasonous isolationism aside, as a result, the government stayed open. Okay, well, it'll stay open for another, like, 45 days, so... Realistically, in a month and a half, I may well just end up taking about three-quarters of the audio from last week's episode and re-releasing it, because it'll again be relevant. And that, right there, sort of hints at one of the two main things that I want to talk about today. You may have noticed a few minutes ago, <laughs> I was a little defensive about having predicted a shutdown only to then be proven at least partially wrong a few days later. I'm sensitive to that appearance of my own failings as an... I don't know, a, a political meteorologist, as it were, because last week's episode is the second one this year in which I predicted some sort of massive, self-inflicted political crisis brought on by Republican brinksmanship, and the second time in which I've ended up being wrong, fortunately, with that crisis having been narrowly averted at the last second. Now, the fact that both times this year I predicted a GOP-inflicted own goal on American governance, those crises ended up being averted at the last second... That is, I would argue, partly a testament to Joe Biden's skill at presidenting, and also an example of the reality that Kevin McCarthy being hopelessly weak and feckless turns out to at least occasionally be a good thing. A broken clock is right twice a year, as it were. That being said, though, when I come on this podcast and, like, metaphorically stand on a street corner in white robes with a sign saying, the end is near, I'm not usually coming out of left field. I mean, like, I keep predicting governing crises because increasingly we keep having them, or at least almost having them and then like narrowly avoiding them. In the wake of these past few rather eventful days on the Hill, Alyssa Slotkin, who's a Democrat from Michigan, went on MSNBC and when the host mentioned the fact that we now only have about a month to avert another government shutdown, she didn't really bat an eye and just said, and I quote, Well, Washington runs on deadlines, and my hope is that the threat of a deadline keeps this process moving smartly. Now, okay, for the record, I should just say, Alyssa is one of the single best members of the House. She's not some barely qualified loudmouth who got there by getting lucky in a primary in a super safe district. She is a former CIA officer and Assistant Secretary of Defense who flipped a Republican district to the blue team, and God willing, she'll be the next senator from Michigan after the 2024 election. She's amazing and is exactly what I hope the future of the Democratic Party looks like. So I'm not mentioning this thing she said to go after her. I bring it up because this sort of cavalier shrug from this person about the reality that the only way we seem to get anything done at this point is maybe in response to a crisis of our own making... That, I think, says something about where we are right now. Now, to be fair, there have been, well, two exceptions to this over the last decade and a half or so. During the first two years of Obama's presidency and then during the first two years of Biden's presidency, Republicans didn't control any part of either of the two branches of government responsible for making or implementing policy, and we managed to get things done, like the Affordable Care Act, Saving the auto industry, a once-in-a-generation investment in America's infrastructure and domestic job creation in important industries, the largest investment ever in green energy, getting COVID vaccines into the arms of hundreds of millions of people in a matter of months in the middle of a pandemic, finally allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, saving the entire economy on two separate occasions. Okay, so when we make Washington a Republican-free zone, we do get things done. Interestingly enough, not so much, on the other hand, in the inverse scenario, where there are no Democrats, it turns out. 
the only legislative achievement under unified Republican government during Trump's first two years in office was to explode the deficit by once again cutting taxes for rich people and corporations. But as long as we have divided government, which realistically is most of the time, we really don't seem to be able to get anything done. And when a Democrat happens to be president, as I've discussed on many occasions, Republicans appear willing to do almost anything, no matter how destructive to the country, in order to get egg on that Democrat's face for having had the temerity to win the presidency even after Republicans worked so hard to skew the election the other way. But again, to the point I'm making here, under divided government, particularly when Republicans in Congress are trying to undermine a government led by a Democratic president, the only way we really seem to be able to keep the lights on is by waiting for some crisis, which Republicans will then use to try to extort the Democrats into capitulating to their agenda, a process that, after much pain and food-throwing, eventually leads to some grudging, kick-the-can-down-the-road compromise. I talked in the last episode about the rise in the modern era of the government shutdown, a pointless and stupid exercise virtually always precipitated by the Republicans that always creates chaos and makes the U.S. look bad on the world stage. Yes, that particular perpetual crisis was worth an episode to itself, but it's hardly the only example of this problem, which has been getting worse. Although I'm not a historian enough to say this with any certainty, I guess this sort of politics-as-a-game-of-chicken thing, at least in the modern era, probably started with the shutdowns in the 90s. And although, as I discussed last week, the shutdown persists as one of these manufactured crises, it is, as I say, hardly the only example. From shutdowns in the 1990s, Republicans expanded their hostage-taking tactics in the early 2010s when they started trying routinely to extract concessions in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling, as I explore more in episode 40, is a stupid thing that shouldn't exist, yet another completely manufactured issue, but one where, if we as a government fail to do our basic job, there would be untold catastrophic consequences. In the way of manufactured crises, the early 2010s also brought us the sequester! Anyone remember the sequester? So, just to refresh, and me being me, go on a historical tangent that may at first seem like a non-sequitur, but I promise will end up playing into my point. In the 2000s, Republicans put two wars and massive tax cuts for the rich on the credit card, which of course exploded the debt. Then their deregulation of the banking industry crashed the economy right before the Democrats took power after the 2008 elections, which meant that the Democrats had to spend much of their brief window of power cleaning up after the Republicans. But in spite of having to focus much of their attention on fixing the immediate economic crisis, the Democrats did manage to get through some of their priorities, like the aforementioned healthcare reform and saving the auto industry, two things which, for the record, have had a very beneficial long-term economic impact. But then in 2010, the Republicans took back the House. And as always seems to happen when they get power in Congress but there's a Democratic president, selective GOP amnesia about the massive spending they authorized when they were in power allowed them to look the country right in the eye and tell us with a straight face that they're super concerned about the debt and we've got to do something, anything, to get the debt under control. <laughs> well, anything that is, except for the most obvious thing, which would of course be reversing at least some of their massive tax breaks for the wealthy. But, as was so often the case during the early Obama years, we naively took Republicans at their word about their sudden concern about the debt and let the whole national conversation shift away from fixing the mess wrought by the 2008 economic crash and toward deficit reduction. A bunch of stuff happened as a part of this, the first real debt ceiling crisis, for example, and other things that I'm going to skip in order to stick at least somewhat close to the point I'm making here about government by crisis. 
But one of those things was a thing we all came up with called the sequester. See, promised I'd get there in the end. And what was the sequester exactly? Well, starting then to recognize the reality that, as Alyssa Slotkin has now put it, Washington runs on deadlines, we basically created a really big, scary deadline for ourselves. A law was passed that would trigger severe and deeply harmful cuts to both military and domestic discretionary spending if Congress didn't come up with a bunch of other less stupid and harmful deficit reduction measures designed to bring down the debt by a certain amount by a certain date. As President Obama described it at the time, the whole design of these arbitrary cuts was to make them so unattractive and unappealing uh, that Democrats and Republicans would actually get together and find a good compromise. So basically we created this fiscal cliff, as it would come to be called, in the hopes that if we drove toward it, somehow this crisis we created for ourselves would encourage us to work together to come up with a solution. This was all designed to say, uh, we can't do these bad cuts, let's do something smarter. That was uh, the whole point. <laughs> Again, borrowing from Obama at the time. Except it didn't work. I mean, yeah, a few things were done that, like, slightly mitigated the effects of the sequester, but ultimately, we just drove over the cliff, which various economists have said resulted in slower job and GDP growth for the economy. And the whole one crisis to the next thing has only gotten worse since then. Here's President Biden in the press conference this week where he's announcing that the government will stay open, channeling his frustration with governance by game of chicken. Stop playing games. Get this done. Quite frankly, I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of the brinksmanship. And so are the American people. I've been doing this, you all point out to me a lot, a long time. I've never quite seen a Republican Congress or any Congress act like this. This spring, mega Republicans brought us to the brink, threatening to fall on America's debt for the first time in over 200 years. And it would have caused a gigantic world crisis in hope both at home and abroad. But we reached an agreement. We shook hands, said, here's the deal. Well, now this fall, the MAGA extremists once again have brought us to the brink, this time to a government shutdown, and going back on the deal they made months ago, not keeping their word. Enough is enough is enough. This is not that complicated. The brinkmanship has to end. And there should be another, there shouldn't be another crisis. There's no excuse for another crisis. Probably a bit more diplomatic than I think is warranted at this point, but yeah, he's spot on. Also, I can hear your sighs of relief that I didn't try and do that one myself. But I don't think I've ever seen anybody actually succeed in doing an impression of Biden, so I'm definitely not brave enough to take a swing at that. Now, earlier in the episode before I went down the rabbit hole of governance by crisis, I did talk about this particular governing crisis having just been narrowly averted, the, the shutdown we just kicked like six weeks down the road. And I also left open the thread at the beginning of the episode about Kevin McCarthy being totally screwed. So just to return to those two loose ends and also sort of tie them together, yes, we may have for now avoided the crisis of a government shutdown. But we did actually get sort of a crisis of another kind. It's just one that I happen to find hilarious which is that for the first time in the history of the United States, a Speaker of the House has been officially vacated from the position. Like, yeah, Speakers have lost their jobs before, but never like this. 
like as a result of being ousted in a no-confidence vote of the full House of Representatives, as happened this week to Kevin McCarthy. And, I mean, what a tragedy. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Or, as I put it in my slightly clownish YouTube short that I released just after the news broke, guy builds his entire career kissing Donald Trump's ass in the hopes that it'd get him to the speakership, and then after selling whatever semblance of a soul he has to the MAGA movement, he gets to be speaker for all of eight months before the MAGAs throw him out on his ass. And, like, some might be inclined to feel sorry for Kevin McCarthy. I, myself, earlier in this episode, described his decision to not shut down the government as effectively a rare moment of patriotism, if only one born out of the recognition that he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't, so might as well do the right thing this one time when doing the wrong thing wouldn't save him either. But let's not forget who this man is. In the 2016 election, when the tape leaked of Trump bragging about sexually assaulting women, and most of the GOP leadership at the time was seriously considering pulling their support for Trump, Kevin McCarthy apparently thought that was crazy and they should obviously stand by Trump. What the hell are you guys doing, he's reported to having said at the time. And then after Trump became president, even if McCarthy himself doesn't really actually believe in anything very much, which is widely agreed to be the case, this is the member of Republican leadership who is seen as by far the friendliest to Donald Trump and his agenda, to the point of Trump referring to him as my Kevin. Even if McCarthy showed signs of readiness to move away from Trump after he and a bunch of his colleagues were almost killed by rioters, Trump sicked on them in the January 6th insurrection, and even though Kevin McCarthy did, for a little bit, both publicly and privately condemn Trump for the insurrection, he still voted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. This is a man who, intentionally or not, did more perhaps than any other Republican to bring Donald Trump back into the mainstream and help rehabilitate his image after January 6th. And then, once he finally achieved his lifelong goal of becoming Speaker, he did so by pledging slavish loyalty to the looniest fringes of the Republican extreme. And then as Speaker, he largely went along with whatever they wanted. I mean, he put, like, certifiably crazy people on important committees. He engaged in brinksmanship around the debt ceiling and a potential government shutdown, even if he did ultimately cave on both. He stood up this subcommittee on the weaponization of government, basically to enable Jim Jordan, one of the single worst, most dishonest, straight-up batshit insane humans ever to wander into Congress, to emit a high-pitched whine about the government enforcing the law when Republicans break it. Like, seriously, this subcommittee exists largely to run cover for Trump and to attack prosecutors investigating him or January 6th insurrectionists or whatever. McCarthy also started an impeachment investigation into President Biden, standing up ridiculous investigations for messaging purposes is going to be a large part of the legacy of Kevin McCarthy's brief speakership. But more than anything else, dude just lied, like, all the time. I mean, take this almost shutdown, for example. This whole shutdown crisis came out of McCarthy having come to a budget agreement with Biden where they avoided the debt ceiling crisis that McCarthy and his friends precipitated this last spring. You heard Biden refer to it in that clip earlier. Seriously, when the debt ceiling crisis was narrowly avoided, McCarthy struck an agreement with Biden on funding for the rest of the year that would have avoided this whole mess. But then McCarthy just reneged on the deal, and that's how we almost got this shutdown. He was just, as I've been saying, he's a short-term thinker who made a ton of promises that he didn't keep, and eventually all of the lies just caught up to him, and that's why he is now out of a job. This is part of what makes it kind of absurd that Republicans who didn't want to see McCarthy go are now all out on TV, like, trying to blame the Democrats. 
seriously, like, on the day of McCarthy getting thrown out of the speakership, a bunch of these Republicans uh, actually did for a change, like, let their hair down for a minute and were all like, oh, goddamn, this is so embarrassing. Oh, we've demonstrated we can't govern. Oh, this looks so bad. One Republican senator came out and said, I'd advise my House colleagues to be sure and take their meds. Uh, but then, of course, the next day, they've all gotten together and agreed on their talking points, and they're all out there on TV like, oh, it's so tragic that the Democrats have created this chaos by removing Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. Like, what, the Democrats were supposed to come in and rescue this guy from the extremists who owned his ass? Like, this guy who <laughs> struck a deal with the president months ago to avoid a government shutdown, then reneged on that deal and started moving toward a shutdown, then needed the Democrats to save his ass by passing his bill to avoid the shutdown, because, yeah, a ton of Democrats did vote for his bill to keep the government open, even if it screws over Ukraine. Then, guy went on TV the next day and trashed the Democrats and blamed them for the fact that we almost had a shutdown? Like, just to lay out the sequence of events around the shutdown, not to mention all of the other terrible things Kevin McCarthy's done as Speaker, the Democrats were then, what, supposed to turn around and vote for this guy, for Speaker, to save him from the lunatic fringe that he himself empowered? I mean, even for the modern Republican Party, that's pretty rich. But it does seem to be what they're going with. There have been some moments on TV in the last day or so when Democratic members of Congress have been on, and the hosts or commentators on the panel or something have sort of channeled the Republicans' argument, probably trying to see if they can get one of the Democrats to be like, Oh, you're right, we should have saved Kevin McCarthy because now we might get someone even crazier. That does seem to be the implicit argument that some of the more potty-trained Republicans have been making over the last day or so. Because it's true. With Kevin McCarthy gone, we might seriously end up with the Speaker being, like, Jim Jordan, who, in addition to being, as I described him before, is famous for having once covered up the widespread sexual assault of student-athletes by the head wrestling coach at Ohio State when he, Jordan, was the assistant coach, which is why I always spell his first name G-Y-M. Or we could end up with the Speaker being Steve Scalise, who, although a bit less outwardly batshit insane than Jordan, did once describe himself as, and I quote, David Duke without the baggage. But you know what? Even the prospect of a crazy Speaker of the House instead of a craven Trump sock puppet Speaker of the House, it still feels pretty ridiculous to hear some Republican congresspeople implying that Democrats should have actively voted for Kevin, my Kevin, McCarthy, to be Speaker in order to somehow, through him, I guess, like preserve moderation and basic governance? Because you know what? If these Republican adults on TV implying this are really so concerned about governing responsibly, well, all it would take is for like five of them to join the Democrats in voting for Hakeem Jeffries for Speaker and problem solved. In all seriousness, from an analytical standpoint, I am curious to see what happens next partly because it provides another opportunity for my fantasy scenario of basically European-style parliamentary coalitions forming in the House. Like, the balances, as I described it, the House is almost perfectly divided between Democrats and Republicans. What if a coalition of most of the Democratic caucus and then all of the remaining somewhat moderate Republicans, like, say, everyone in the bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, came together and then picked some extremely centrist Democrat, like, I don't know, a Henry Cuellar from Texas to be the speaker. Or, you know, maybe brought in some moderate Republican, like Charlie Dent or somebody else out of retirement to do the job. 
And then they came up with a power-sharing agreement that would apportion committee chairmanships to some people from both parties, along the lines of how in a coalition government in a parliamentary democracy, different posts go to different parties. It would be historic. Democrats wouldn't get everything they want, but at least it would probably mean smooth operation of the government, and the few remaining moderate Republicans would have a chance to show that some of them actually are serious about governing. It would be very interesting, and... I think, actually, extremely good for the country in the short and the long term. But who am I kidding? They'll just have an extended food fight and the defenestration of Kevin McCarthy, in spite of his slavish loyalty to Donald Trump, will just go down as one more piece in a long line of evidence proving two things. One, no matter how much you kiss Donald Trump's ass, loyalty in the MAGA sphere goes only to Donald Trump himself. And two, the Republican Party is absolutely not prepared to govern. In the end, perhaps the most tragic thing for all of us about Kevin McCarthy's brief and tumultuous reign as Speaker of the House is that the writers were on strike for about three quarters of it, meaning we missed out on the late night guys having quite a bit of day-to-day -day comedy potential at the expense of the now former Speaker of the House. And that's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to make sure not to miss the next episode, be sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you listen, or shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com to be added to the email list. Also, please do feel free to reach out if you have ideas for the show, a topic you want me to cover, somebody you think I should have on. Really, I can't promise I'll always be able to answer or very quickly, but I'm serious. I'd love to hear from you. oktalkspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you really want to do me a solid, please do go ahead and share the show with anybody you think might get something out of it. To anybody who already has, thanks. To any who will, thanks in advance. Thanks as always to Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to everyone else for listening. Mm -hmm.